ride with me in my foul life. Podcast World with Shake and Chad Belling back at you. Another episode of the Foul Life Podcast. I'm excited as heck today to bring you another episode of the Dogtra series presented by our friends at Dogtra Training Callers. Brad Arrington uses them. Everybody knows Brad Arrington. Everybody knows Team Mossy Pond, especially if you watch the Foul Life. Check us out on social media. Follow any of our content that we're... Th- trying to stay consistent on throughout every day during quarantine during covid brad is running a heck of a kennel in georgia and uh i can't i can't quit bragging about axel how much i've fallen in love with him brad errington welcome back my brother thank you for having us thank you for having us yeah um tickled to death with axel's performance and tickled to death to have him back home with you and excited to hear some good hunting stories coming up i can't wait either our other guest today hails from the state of minnesota he is with dogtra company he does everything from sales to marketing to social media to working trade shows consumer shows if you see a booth at a show whether it's game fair whether it's a cabela's event a bass pro event an independent mom and pop retail event you will find pete fisher in that booth talking doctor the culture the story the product line the development questions and answers this is the man for the job i'm proud to have him mr pete fisher welcome to the podcast i appreciate it and uh good good to see brad Uh, i haven't uh, talked to him in a couple months but i look forward to uh spending some time talking dogs talking e-callers and uh pretty much anything how's that I like it. I like hearing that. The first thing that comes to mind is a comment that Brad has made several times in the past 45 days. Mr. Petey says that the the simplicity, the ease of use, the uh, ease of operation on a caller, um, making it a no brainer for the end consumer, the end user, when you have the responsibility of taking on a training caller and what your mission is with that dog, no matter what the breed is. Brad Arrington has said many times that he chooses Dogtra because it's the best and they've made it dummy proof it's simple um why is that why does he talk like that and how do you feel the same exact way yeah i agree with him 100 percent. even though you know in my uh role with dog over quite a few years dating back to 2000 uh which is about when i uh, started using the product when i had my training kennel you know they were very basic uh chad and now we've put a lot of technology just like everything that's out there and of course, with technology also comes uh, a higher rate of, of breakage. And, you know, quite honestly, I think we've got too much technology in it some days, but it does help sell units. It's also very valuable. You know, like one of the things that we see with all remote training callers nowadays is variable intensity right on the transmitter. And I'm kind of dating myself here now, but I, I lived in an era, uh, this is before both of you guys' time, where we only had one level on the training caller, and that was wide open. And nowadays we can tailor that that stimulation level to every temperament uh, of the dog, whether you got a soft dog, a medium dog, or a hard dog. So we do we do try and make them as bulletproof as we possibly can because, you know, when you think about what these things go through, you know, they're drugged through the mud. You think about the product that we sell to the coon hunting community, and there's nobody any rougher on product than the coon hunters. But, you know, that's what we strive for is durability, but also the fact that it's it's pretty uh, easy for the average person to use. So I think those are really two key key things to look at when you're developing and, and uh, producing a training collar. Brad Arrington, when you hear Pete talk about the temperament of dogs, the soft, the hard, the different, the different levels of the collar and how you can pretty much customize your settings, 
how long does it take as a professional dog trainer with as many years as you've been doing this, Brad, and we're going on, I think, 20 years now, and you're only 35 years old or you're 33 or whatever it is, you've been doing this a long time for such a young age. How long does it take a professional trainer like you or Lee Howard to know what temperament that dog is? Well, it's pretty quick for us. Um, You know, we we should be able to pick up on that as soon as we get the dog, you know, and we take the dog out and we start doing some of the basic stuff and seeing where the dog's at, filling the dog out and um, getting a a good assessment of the dog. But um, what you mentioned earlier is how um, easy it is to use. But what we, what our hardest job is, Training dogs, you know, that's something that we do. That that that's that's pretty easy for us. I mean, it should be. We're professionals, and but our hardest job is to taking taking our customers in camp and teaching them how to operate these dogs. And um, most of our customers are successful, um, intelligent people, but training them to know how to train their dog and get those adequate timely corrections is very is very difficult so having a collar that they can understand and and comprehend what we're saying to them and and using is is a is a tough task but having a collar like what uh, mr pete and Dogtra has designed for us it makes our job so much easier and i, I think that's the hardest thing we do as dog trainers is teaching our customer how to train and how to um, use the equipment. Um, It's hard enough to operate and handle a dog, much less handle a collar. So um, our collars and um, the guys at Dogtra, they've got it figured out where um, it it makes our job a lot easier. Pete, when you hear Brad talk like that, uh, is it it something that's even a question when it comes to would you hunt a dog without a collar, a coon dog, a pheasant dog, an upland chucker dog, a quail dog, a duck dog, a goose dog. Do you take a dog into the great outdoors on a hunt without a collar? I personally do not. And I, I kind of live by this theory. It's like life insurance. Better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. And so I just did a seminar up here. I'm pretty involved with pheasants forever up here, uh, Chad. And I did a, uh, a, uh, demonstration with a, a young dog that I have that, that Brad actually had down south with him for a while, Trey. And uh, as I did the, the demonstration for a youth uh, group of Pheasants Forever, and there are probably 150 kids there with their adult parents, you know, one of the things that I stressed was how we prepare a dog for the hunting season. And one of the things I like to do is incorporate a story or two <clears throat> with the training. And what I did is I asked the young adults, I said, how many of you play baseball and obviously quite a few of the girls and boys raised their hand that they played softball or baseball and then my next question to them was when your parents took you and put you in your first baseball game did you ever practice and most of them said yeah we do and I run into a heck of a lot of people Chad that still take a dog out hunting and they've never trained it They've never broke it to the gun. They've never associated the birds and they've sure as heck never used a remote training collar on this dog. And so the analogy I use is, hell, if you put a kid in a baseball game and he never practiced and he got lucky and hit the damn ball, he wouldn't know where, whether to run to first base, uh, second base, the pitcher's mount or run back to the parking lot. So I think there's a fair amount of groundwork we need to do as trainers or individuals with that dog before we ever take him out in the field. I would never in this day and age take my dog out in a pheasant field, even though they're under great control. 
or out in the duck blind where I expect him to sit and stay or be in a dog hut while I'm out in the field and that dog to stay 100% of the time and not be a, a, a factor in running in front of the gun or breaking. So I've got the training collar on him. But long before I ever put that dog in that scenario, I've collar conditioned that dog and he knows uh, what the routine is going to be with the remote training collar. Brad, you've talked about this quite a bit, going back to Pete's analogy of life insurance, um, of, of the safety and the ethics of what that caller can provide during that hunt. Um, it, it, let's take it, for example, let's just talk about a duck hunt, Brad. Give me an analogy of how that caller can become a, you know, a necessity during a hunt to save a dog or to make a, jo- a dog's job easier. If he's too on too far of a swim and he can't hear you, he gets a little nick and he comes back. Uh, give me some analogies where, where that life insurance policy plays in Brad Arrington. Well, you know, um, some of the things that we ask out of these dogs are, are extreme, unnatural. And, um, you know, just like in the, in the ground force blind, hundreds and hundreds of birds coming in and cupped up and volleying into the decoys and we're in our layout blinds and we're tucked in there for that dog, not even to move, you know, what, what would he have to move two foot, three foot. If he moves out in front, he's in front of our gun barrel, you know, and even though these dogs are seasoned and, and been there and done it and they've been with a trainer and the trainer does has done his job and, um, the transfer to the owner or the new handler or the duck guide or the goose guide, um, has done all their homework. He's still a dog. And, you know, um, at that point, if he, if he creeps out or, or maybe you see it a time or two and you don't have anything like the e-collar to remind him that he needs to, that he needs to obey and he needs to be disciplined and um, obedient in that ground force blind, you know, he pops out and gets, he, he gets hurt or gets killed. Um, and then another one, you know, um, is rural is some of our hunting spots are getting these days, you know, he gets on a crippled goose and is going towards the highway um, and he gets out of hearing distance, you know, that, that's some of the, that's the only thing or a swift river, or so many health factors, um, that are out there without that, um, e-collar he's after a crippled goose. His job is to ca- capture the goose and bring it back. Well, if we see danger in the way, we need some, uh, reassurance and some, our insurance policy to kick in. To, to bring that dog back and remind him, look, I'm calling you back. I'm calling you off the game. I'm calling you off of what I've taught you to do. But in, in this situation, you need to come on back. I love that. And Pete, when you hear Brad talk like that, on the other side of the spectrum is what Brad has mentioned to me in the past before of, and I don't know if he's used this word and Brad, correct me if I'm wrong, but these devices can become a crutch for the user. And Brad has talked about training that user and that handler as they transition from the kennel to a real life hunting situation and that dog going to live back at home and going on the road and hunting daily or a couple days a week. Can they become a crutch, Mr. Pete? And do you talk about this in your seminars of how to avoid that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, and that's one of the most common questions we get is, um, you know, is my dog going to have to wear the remote training collar all the time? And and the answer to that is depends on the dog's trainability level. But, you know, initially I tell people that this is long-term behavior management. So we use it every day. We condition the dog uh, in many different steps. And, and Brad uses a, a similar method as I did over the years. And it's really a 
three-step process. Come, come to me, go stationary, go away from me. A dog learns to turn off that static electricity, uh, that stimulation by complying with those particular camp commands. And so we use the collar to reinforce commands the dog already knows. But once we get out in the field, as Brad alluded to, you know, we're going to have times where you throw them in the, the heat of the battle, so to speak, and you've got birds coming into the decoys and, and there's calls going off and, and we're, I've seen dogs break and Brad has, and, and Chad, you have as well. I've seen dogs break on the click of a gun safety. I mean, they become that condition to what is going down. Gun safety goes off, guns go off, birds fall, dog takes off. And pretty soon you've got a breaking dog on your hands. And so, you know, a lot of us call it the electric lead. And really all it is is just an extension of being able to reinforce commands. And so what we do is we've got the dog in the hut. He starts getting out a little bit on us, starts creeping, tap, tap, tap the training collar. I hiss at him. I sit, get him back down and get him in the in the uh, back in the blind. And so, yeah, they, we do become dependent on it. But one of the things that that we have to realize is we built these dogs up. They have high drive. Brad had my dog down there. He run through a brick wall to get a bird for you. But now all at once we want him to say, hey, wait a minute, Trey, you sit and stay and wait until all the birds are down. And I give you the all clear and I send you on your name. So as Brad alluded to earlier, we, we're asking a hell of a lot of these dogs in this day and age, and, and they perform. Heck, you take these dogs that we have nowadays, go back 30 years ago with any given master hunter uh, like I have or Brad has, and, and we throw them into a field trial in 20, 30 years ago, people would be in awe of these dogs. And so it, it does become a crutch, but um, it, it's, it's a good crutch, in my opinion, because the, the alternative is we got a dog that breaks out in front of the gun, or as Brad said, you got a dog that you can't call off a bird or let's say you got one that chases deer and he runs across a busy road and so uh it becomes a safety issue but really it's all about control in my opinion this is just a great tool it works on static electricity by the way and so it doesn't have enough voltage it's not like sticking a fork in an outlet where you can burn tissue or anything like that uh that's a misconception but it's just a great tool for reinforcing commands at a distance Brad, when you hear his analogy of a great tool at a distance and reinforcing commands, what would you say are the top three reasons for a dog to have a collar on during the hunt? The top three reasons. Is it safety? Is it um, is it is it being able to get, reinforce these commands? Is those the top two? And is there a third one, or are there are there just this? That's it. Concrete answer right there of why you have why you should have an e collar on a dog during the hunt. Well, everything we do here at Mossy Pond starts with health care and safety, um, whether it's in the kennel, um, feeding, um, out in the field. You know, everything revolves around safety and keeping that dog healthy. That comes before any training. Um, the caretake for how we care for our dogs here at Mossy Pond is how we take care of them. So number one answer, very simple. We do a lot of obedient dogs here, and that's n normally, I mean, um, for safety. So um, that, that's the number one answer, and it, it outweighs the others by a good margin. Um, second is, you know, um, for me, and the reason I got into this, I wanted to be able to go in the field and enjoy my buddy and have a good time and enjoy it, as opposed to be hollering like we've all heard, screaming at our dog, and him be a nuisance and an aggravation. And after the hunt, we feel like we're wore out 
because we had to constantly holler at the dog. So, um, you know, having that dog uh, be more obedient and a, more of a pleasure to be around for me and my hunting buddies, um, that would be the second one, just the obedient side of it, being obedient and um, being being a little gentleman in the duck blind, dove, dove field, out um, upland hunting. No matter what you're doing, um, he, he's a gentleman and did this tool, dog trip, um, you know, the, the e-collar, it, it makes these dogs more of a gentleman and uh, more of a pleasure to be around. So first, by a good margin, is, is health from our obedient dogs to our um, highest level of um, competition dogs. And then second, um, I want the dog to be obedient and be a pleasure to be around because everybody's either been in a barbecue or a duck hunt or somewhere that a dog's a nuisance and an aggravation, and you're like, please somebody catch the dog and put him up and uh, i i took pride in that even when i was I, I remember um i was very young and this i used to have beagles and one of my buddies one of my beagles he was a puppy and he wouldn't run and i remember my buddy talking about it i'm um, talking about how my beagle wasn't any good and he, he didn't do any good and that it was like him talking about my mama. So um, I, I said, that will never happen again. I said, before any of my buddies see my dogs, they're going to be top notch. And that went into my beagles, went into, then I got into bird dogs, uh, pointers, and uh, fell right into retrievers. So before I show a customer a dog, before I show any of my buddies a dog, definitely before I go out hunting, he's going to be a gentleman. Do you have anything to add to that, Pete? And, and then I want you to talk about patience and being where you're at in your dog career, and I've already kind of stated how, where, how long Brad's been in this at such a young age. You've been in it for a long time also, Mr. Pete. Do you have a patience level when you go to a duck blind with a person that might not have a collar on, whimpering dog, breaking dog, barking dog, just, you know, one of these dogs that we all encounter. We are dog lovers, but even as a dog lover, yep. Mr. Pete, we run out of patience. How long does it take you personally? And do you, are you of that personality to tell the guy, hey, look, here's, here's some advice, even if you might not know the guy, or do you speak <laughs> up when you see this going on? Or am I the only one that feels the need to do so? Well, um, yeah, I, you know, just so we're clear, I'm not a very patient man. <laughs> <Okay>? <laughs> and I had a fairly large retriever training kennel up here in Minnesota for 30 some odd years. And people say to me, God, you know, you what a great job. You must have a lot of patience. <laughs> I'm kind of type A. And I'd say to him, you know what? I'm not a real patient man. Um, I'm not. You ask my wife if you want. OK. And my children. And um but it's just the, the mold that I'm cut from. But um, I, when I train dogs, I always try and be firm but fair. Might be the best way I would put it. But when I'm out hunting, and I, I've run into this, and one of my uh, – I sometimes like to tell a story and see if we can tie it into some training. I was out in the uh, uh, Harvey, North Dakota area. Some of the greatest waterfall hunting I ever had in my life was out in that area. And we were field hunting with a group of guys. And, in fact, this guy that used to be the Ukanuba rep uh, for RFG Distributing up here – David Brew was with me and David turned into a dear friend. And one of the ways I got hooked on Yukonuba dog food many, many years ago, and David has since passed away, but uh, David didn't have a dog, but he was always with me. And I had some buddies that had dogs and I had a master hunter back there by the name of Rex and Rex was bred 118 times in his life. Just so we, uh, he was a pretty good dog and I had a lot of contacts. And one of the things I always tell people is, you know, if I hadn't made it in the dog industry, I probably would have made a great pimp, but uh, Rex had bred 118 18 times in his life and was a great waterfall dog, 
Uh, never, I never let them break on any bird, but I was hunting with some guys that had dogs that would break out of their uh, huts and go after the birds. And, you know, after you've sat there all morning long, you've shot a bunch of birds and your dog's nice and steady. And these other dogs are breaking and picking up all the birds. I finally had enough and I got out of my blind and walked over and tossed him a leash. And I said, okay, now you tie him up. So my dog gets a couple retrieves here. And, and, you know, it's, it's only fair to do that. You can't expect a, a high powered dog like Rex was, who was a kind of a spitting image of Trey, Brad, to sit there all morning long and never pick up a bird. And this is what this dog trained for and ran competitions all summer long to do. And so, yeah, it's fair. And uh, that guy couldn't get his dog tied up and he took it back and put it in the truck and put it in a crate. And then we had to listen to him bark in the, off in the distance in the truck for a while. But um, I, I'm not very patient with that because I put in a hell of a lot of effort to get a dog that's controllable in the field. And I don't want to hunt with another dog that ruins the hunting. So um, I think it's only fair to, to everybody that's in the hunting party that you have a controllable dog. Well, I love hearing that. Very well said. Brad, do you agree 100%? Oh, definitely. You know, um, it, it it's hard for me. Um, you know, I try to bite my tongue, try to um, talk to them and um, um, get through it and do it in a nice way. But you forget all the blood, sweat, and tears goes into a good dog. And, you know, it, 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 it sounds bogus to me to have a dog that's not disciplined and not uh, a gentleman out in the blind because, you know, that's what we do. But, you know, some people just, they don't know. They've never seen a great dog, but, and that, that's what I try to educate them on, you know, that, um, they'll make an excuse for my dog. Well, he, he likes to go or he, he's got too much anxiety or he's got too much energy. Well, that's, that's not the case. Um, it's, it's the owner, it's the handler's fault that they don't spend the time and put in the effort to, to make these dogs, um, a pleasure to be around. Pete, when you think about our dogs and you've mentioned Rex and you've mentioned other dogs that you have had in your career. Brad has had several good ones. We just lost Rufus a couple weeks ago um, that we had the pleasure of hunting with up in North Dakota probably four or five years ago now, Brad, uh, a dog from the East Coast that Brad had the pleasure of training. Um, are you satisfied, Mr. Pete, with what the higher powers, the God above, the God that you pray to, gave us with our dog's longevity. Do you like the fact that they come into our life for maybe 15 years and then they're gone and maybe at eight or nine, we start breeding another one or raising another one from another litter. Are you happy with that? Is that suffice? Or do you wish you had one dog for your entire career? Maybe a couple, but they live forever. You know, again, that's, that's a wonderful question. I've, I've thought about it, never had it asked to me, but, um, a dog that really is uh, uh, near and dear to me was this Rex dog. And you can find him if you, if you Google the name Fisher's Watermark Rex. Uh, he was a master hunter. A uh, very similar dog in, in nature and, and uh, disposition and accomplishments to my current dog, Trey, who uh, became a master hunter at a fairly young age. Uh, the only difference was is I was back in business uh, when I owned Rex, Chad. And, and so a lot of people saw him when I do dog demonstrations at Cabela's and places like that or game fair pheasant fest and so this dog got to be uh got to be quite well known and and he was uh, he was a unique dog but all of them are unique but it, he was really maybe the the reason that i hold this particular dog rex in such high esteem is that he really put me on the map as a dog trainer got me connections uh with the company that i i now work for dogtra and so um that 
that's that might be uh, and i also hunted um I, I had much better waterfall hunting back then we our waterfall season uh population has dried up around here in central minnesota and i just think back to some of those times like i alluded to out in the prairies of north dakota with some of the my best friends and and i had this dog with me and we just had phenomenal waterfall hunting um maybe that i have a lot of great memories with that dog um so i wish the dog like that would would live forever but Quite honestly, that they uh, we we nobody lives forever. No dog lives forever. I got into an interesting discussion with one of the guys at Yukonuba just last week. His name is Corey Norton, and uh, Corey uh, is the equivalent of Brett Volmert. Uh, Brett's with the Sporting Dog Division. Corey's with the Canine uh, Bunch, and uh, we got talking about how dogs how dogs live. Retrievers. Uh, most of mine live to be about thirteen years of age, and. I've run into people that say, well, why don't you feed them, uh, you know, like a natural food or why don't you feed them raw diet? And I said, you know, my dogs have lived to be Labrador retrievers that lived to be age 13, Chad, and, and they've led, led a great life. And uh, I just don't know if uh, I'd like to think that the good dog food I've fed for for many, many years is one of the reasons they've they've uh, stayed as healthy as they have. But I said to them, so by feeding a raw diet, what would have that accomplished? You would have that dog would have lived to be. 13 years and one month. So um, I, I think some of it has to do with, you know, just Labrador retrievers. They, they they only live to be about 13. We wish they'd live to be as long as we do, but they don't. Uh, that's just the nature of the beast. Brad, is it hard for you to accept when they do go, when Rufus went, when other dogs that you've trained? Because you get really tied in. You get really close to a lot of dogs, more so than myself does, because you have 150 dogs at the kennel, and sometimes Mr. Pete did back in the day when he had his kennel. Is it hard, or have you come to terms with this, Brad, that, hey, what Mr. Pete just said, it is what it is, 13, you kind of start to expect it. We do have the occasional mishap with the with the diseases and the cancers and the early deaths. I had a yellow lab at four and a half years ago, which was uh, just devastating. But how do you accept it now, Brad? And does it get easier being around them all the time? Or does it get, is it even more and more difficult the closer you get with all of these different dogs? Well, you, you can't do what we do, what Mr. Pete does, what you do, Chad, or what I do if you're not extremely passionate about it. I mean, it's not just a job for us. You know, it's what we live, what we breathe, what we sleep. I mean, every second, that's what we do. Um, so it's not just a job. I don't just go out there and get a dog out of the kennel, work him, put him up, get another dog. I mean, um, I, I, I coach my son. Grayson in baseball and football and um, just like all the kids on that team I mean um, and, and we get attached to every single dog here and every kid on those teams we're attached to them I mean those, those dogs I look at them just like those kids I mean we, we're up and down the road with them we're to New York all up the east coast Lee and Clark were in Virginia this weekend I mean you're out at midnight letting those dogs out um, you know at, around the hotel the motel putting them up feeding them watering them the next morning at 5am you're out caretaking for them you go to the line you're, you're giving them a pep talk in the holding line come on man let's do this this is what we work so hard for um, work with me here let, let, let's get this job done it's just not a job it, it we're you're buddies with these guys i mean it's just like you know 
I wouldn't put it as far fetched as a as a military family going into war, but I mean we are we are buds. I mean those that those are my guys, those are my girls. Um, I trust them, I believe in them. They trust and believe in me, or they wouldn't work for me. They wouldn't do those great things that they that they do for us. Um, so no, it, it it's extremely tough. I mean when a dog goes here, it it's like. I mean, Rufus, um, Clint Beatty, he brought Rufus out and he said, I wanted his last retrieve to be with you, Brad, because that was the best years of his life. And we, I got some shackle mallards out here and we gave him a flyer. And, um, you know, I've seen a lot come and go. I've seen a lot of good ones come and go, but, um, that, that, that was tough on me. Um, tough on the Mossy Pond family here. Um, Rufus, um, he made a big impact here. He was a, he was a great dog, but every one of them, you know, um, the, the owners would give us a call and let us know as they're getting old. And I, I can think of a, a bunch of them over the years, but, um, it, it's extremely tough. It's like one of our kids. And that, that's why I was referring to the baseball and the football team. It's, it's not just a dog. It's not just a tool for the field. It's our it's our family. Hearing Brad talk like that, Pete, first, do you have anything to add to his comments? Well, yeah, I mean, they do become part of the family. Um, no no doubt about that. And and I'm not afraid to admit this. You know, every, everyone I've ever had to put down on my own, I've cried like a baby. I mean, that, that just tells you the, how near and dear these, these uh, animals have uh, ingrained themselves into our lives and you know, again, I wish they'd live forever, but the reality is, is they don't. And um, I've, I've always had another dog. I've never been dogless. And so that helps. And then, uh, but you just sit back and God, I've said this hundreds of times over the years when clients have gotten a hold of me and said, you know, I had to, had to put the dog down and I'll just say to them, you know, you had, uh, had a dog of a lifetime and you had a wonder, a lot of wonderful days in the field. And, and uh, tonight just sit back, have a cold beer and, and uh, enjoy the hunt. And so that's the way I treat it. And they're great animals. Uh, cry like every time, like a baby when we put one down and, and we move on. And, and it doesn't stop me from getting another one. I've run into some people that it hurts so bad they can't do it again. And um, my theory is you get another one and you just uh, there's just only so many days you can enjoy in the field, you guys. And uh, I'm not going to be out there without a dog. It just adds too much to the hunt, period. When you hear Brad Arrington talk the way he does about dogs, his training facility, his clients, his reputation, with your longevity in the industry, Mr. Pete, what do you look for in somebody to wear the hat that Brad's wearing right now? What I know that you work with several kennels. Mossy Pond by no means is the only kennel in the country, but it, in my eyes, it's the best because I, what I've seen come out of there and what we've done, accomplished in the last 60 months. What do you look for and what do you see in a Brad Arrington that turns you on? First off, you sent your dog to him. Second off, he flies the flag for Dogtra, the company that employs you. He yep. feeds the food that you talk so highly about in Yukonuba. Why <laughs> yeah. Brad Arrington? What does he have? What does his family have? What does Lee Howard have? What does Mossy Pond have that Pete Fisher looks for in an ambassador and in a kennel to fly their flag? Hey, you know, great. Another great question. Birds of feather flock together, as we say, right? And, um, you know, I mean, they just they don't get any better than the other guy we have on here. And, and I've, you know, interestingly enough, I know this man quite well, but we've never met face to face. Are you aware of that? I have um, not. I have met Lee Howard numerous times at the Master National. In fact, is Lee and uh, Clark were just up at my place and spent some time training up here about a month or so ago. And, uh, yeah, we've got lots of, of trainers out there that that uh, 
use our product. And uh, but I mean, again, we just got we got the best of the best. I've said that many times on some Facebook comments when we start chatting about Brad Arrington and and the team over at Mossy Pond. I mean, that, just plain and simple, that's the best of the best. And and there are a lot of very successful trainers. Uh, many times, uh, Chad, the individuals come to us. Um, uh, if I recall, Brad, correct me if I'm wrong. I think you reached out to Dogtra and we're looking to switch, or I, I think I got your name from somebody and, and you and I uh, did a phone call and, and we got uh, involved and kind of developed a relationship and I'm big into relationship building. I mean, that's kind of my, I'm, I'm pretty damn good at it and I'm easy. I find good people and I like to surround myself with good people, but uh, I've really kind of turned into the ambassador of for Dogtra. And of course my background's retriever. So then it's always easier to get hooked up with good retriever people, but my gosh, we got lots of people out here uh, that that use our product. And I don't want to start. We got Brad on with us, and I don't want to start naming names of people that use our product. And I just think the world of because, quite honestly, I, I'd miss somebody. There's because we've got way, we got lots and lots of people, Chad, using our product. Professional trainers all across this country, and that's a testament to the product quality and and how this company has grown and and how has it grown and why has it grown? Because we've surrounded ourselves with good people out in the field like Brad and we rely on them to give us feedback. And, and, uh, you know, anybody thinks that, that, uh, having an influencer like Brad, uh, Arrington and Lee Howard doesn't help your, your brand. Uh, they're wrong. And so we've got a lot of really good ones out there and, and we're still looking for more. How's that? I mean, I'm never, I've got my eyes on a number of different trainers that use a competitor's product and, I just say to them, hey, you keep using it, and, and when the time comes, you, you know how to get a hold of me. So um, that that's kind of how 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 I operate, and really how Dogtra operates. So when you, when, Mr. Pete, I don't want to leave you yet. Hold on a second. When you are at the Master Nationals and you see somebody like Mr. Lee Howard handling a dog at the line. And knowing what his qualifications are and what Brad and Lee have done at Mossy Pond and what Brad has built down in Georgia. Do you take pride in that, even though you don't have ownership in their kennel, even though you don't get a check from Mossy Pond, do you take pride in seeing a guy like Lee Howard handle and coming out of the school of Brad Arrington, knowing that, because I've been told by top dog trainers in this country, not just Brad, but other ones like Chris Aiken that say, this is the glory day of dogs. We've transitioned into like, this is, they've become like racehorses. We're in the glory days right now, the golden age of sporting dogs. Do you take pride in seeing Brad Arrington and Lee Howard fly the flag for the next generation and the current generation of dog handlers, trainers, and owners? Oh gosh, yes. I mean, there's uh, to see the success that these uh, individuals are having, and and then at the end of the day or the end of the uh, the weekend or the week long event where they're handed a ribbon, yeah, I take a lot of pride, and I take a lot of pride that they're using our product, but I also take a lot of pride because I, I'm uh, I'm like the Swiss Army knife at, for Dogtra. I mean, I can do some of everything, jack of all trade, master of none, but I take a lot of pride in being the support uh, out there when. Uh, uh, when Brad or Lee or Clark are having issues with a product, whether it be something that is uh, a dog tree issue, a breakage issue, a battery issue, uh, or like Lee, Lee called me one day, he was on the road here this summer and he goes, Pete, my unit died. I think he was at an SRS event. And I said, he goes, yeah, uh, help me, you know? And I said, well, let's do the first thing first. Uh, you've got your RT unit there. I assume you've got uh, the correct battery charger with it. He goes, yeah. And I said, you got a 10 volt output charger. And there was a long pause. 
<laughs> and he had a five volt output charger. <laughs> I said, my friend, you need to find yourself a 10 volt output charger somewhere on the, on the road there because you, you can't use that five volt charger. So that's one of the roles that I play, Chad, uh, in, in, at Dogtra is that, um, I, I dealt with a number of people this morning before we, we got on this, uh, uh, Zoom call for the, for the podcast and, uh, helping a gal out in California that was having an issue with a battery on her unit. That's what the company does. I'm, uh, I, I get paid to do it. It's a great gig. I love what I did for 30 years and now for 10 years. Um, I work for Dogtra. Uh, I, I love what I do and I've made a hell of a lot of great contacts and, and, and the guys over at Mossy Ponds are just one of them. But I do take a lot of pride in, in knowing that I, I was some part of helping that dog attain that title. Um, you know, whether it was the guys at Mossy Pond or any of the other kennels or individuals that use our product. Brad, when you hear Pete talk like this with his longevity and his tenure in this industry and section, you know, sector of the hunting outdoors, what precautions do you take, Brad Arrington, to ensure that you live up to what he just said? Because if somebody went to Mossy Pond and woke up when you woke up for so many years at the time you wake up daily still, the sacrifices you've made for your family the sacrifices that Miss Ellen has made for you to build this dream and help you build it, the sacrifices that your trainers, the employment, the insurance, the dogs, the food, the, the, the safety, the security of the kennel, there's so much that goes into it. What precautions do you take to make sure that you're living up to this reputation that was just described by Mr. Pete? Oh, a lot, a lot. It, I, I think about it all the time. The biggest thing is, you know, hard work. I got to get up and grind every day. And, you know, um, just like I mentioned earlier, we're, we're so passionate about it here at Mossy Pond. That that helps us. That helps us keep keep grinding. But, um, you know, there, there's a lot of people, if, 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 if our dogs don't perform and we don't do a good job, there's a lot of people that I let down. I let down Mr. Pete. I let down um, the Foul Life, Dog Truck, all, all the other sponsors, Yukonuba, uh, and, you know, all the way down to my family. You know, I'm trying to build something here that my, my family will be proud of and maybe um, work in my kids one day. So, um, and, and my customers, you know, that I, I, I will still say this to this day. I've never had a customer that would work with me that I have ever left um, has ever left Mossy Pond that's been dissatisfied. If if they're not happy about something, we fix it, um, and, and we fix it for Dolcher, we fix it for Yukonuba, we fix it for Bandit Avery, um, the Foul Life. We fix it for uh, my kids, for my family, for my workers, for Lee, everybody here. Um, for the future of Mossy Pond, we, we make sure that customer's happy, and um, but we we don't let anybody go home um, unhappy. If, if a dog's not right. We replace it. We fix it. We train more. We work harder. Um, uh, we do what we got to do to ensure that everybody is happy and satisfied. Um, and that, that, that that's the way I've always done business from day one. My accountant at the end of the year, when he looks at my books and says, good Lord, Brad, you gave X amount back of free training to um, guys that weren't happy. You can't keep doing that. I said, I'll always do that. I'll go out of business doing it. Um, and that, I, I make sure and um, I, I can I can put my head down on my pillow every night knowing that I did everything I could to, to make everybody happy that, that is up under the umbrella of Mossy Pond. I love hearing that. I know Mr. Pete loves hearing that. Um, I assume you do, Mr. Pete. When you, talk, when you see the product box sitting behind Brad Arrington there in Georgia – 
and that lady calls you from California, let's just say that she just got a new black lab, a male. He's probably going to be upwards of 65, 70 pounds when he's, when he's three years old. He's going to be a water dog, but he'll do some dry land hunting too. Is there a certain scenario that plays out or a certain um, set of instructions that you tell that potential dog to your customer? Which collar do they start with? Do they, do they graduate to another caller when they get to a certain point? Let's assume that she said, I live in Georgia and I'm going to send my dog to Brad. Do you give her your ideas of what caller you want her to be equipped? I know Brad's going to give him his, his insight and his feedback, and he's got the ability to order her a caller. But what do you tell her, Mr. Pete, on what to start with? And is there a graduation level to the next caller? Yeah. Um, you know, when I start out and I'm talking to somebody about what, e-collar fits them and their situation and their dog best. I normally have a handful of questions I ask them, Chad. And uh, first one is normally going to be size because I want to fit the uh, the size of the unit to the dog. And then the next most, most critical question that I have for that person is, and now if it's a puppy, we can't ask this question, but if it's an older dog, which is a lot of times we do have to feel these questions because the dog's got a behavior issue is that has the dog had any experience with a remote training collar, an underground fence system, or a no-bark collar? And if they say no, well, then I'm going back to what size is the dog. I'm always going to err on trying to get that person to buy a little bit more training collar than what they really need. And I'll tell you why. We break our units down into two groups, medium output and high output. The medium output units, most of them have a little bit smaller receiver box. That's the piece that goes on the dog. So if I'm dealing with a 20-pound dog, I can't go to a high output unit that has a higher receiver box because it's going to be like a boat anchor on the dog. So, and problem solved, right? With it running away. So, so we go try and fit that unit to that smaller dog. But if we've got a dog like a Labrador retriever that you referenced, and it's going to be a 65 pound dog, I'm going to go with a high output unit. And I, that dog's going to be able to handle any one of our bigger receiver boxes. And a lot of times people say to me, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, Pete, I, I don't necessarily need a high output unit. And I'm going to say, you know what? I want you to have a high output unit. And Brad's going to agree with this. When I get into critical training situations where that dog's got distractions and that distraction becomes greater than the amount of static electricity I can apply to that dog, I want that 20, 25% more stimulation power for those critical situations. Now, with that said, when they say to me, wait a minute, I don't need a high output unit. I'll say, hey, wait a minute. You drive a truck with an eight cylinder in it, but it's got a gas pedal on it, right? You're the, the person that decides how fast the, the, the gas pedal gets depressed, how far down, and how fast you go. You decide how much stimulation this dog needs. You can still dial all of our units back to little or no stimulation, okay? But if I need it for those critical uh, training environments, that's when I want a high output unit. Uh, even our medium output units, if you look at some of those smaller units like our 280C or our ARC unit, and uh, those are medium output units, and I always tell people, Go ahead and put that, strap that on and turn it on its highest level. And if you can hang on to that, I'll give you the unit. How's that? Even on the highest level on a medium output, it's going to make the fillings in your teeth tingle. So uh, that's kind of how I fit the units. And one of the things that we run into uh, many, many times, uh, Chad, is that people seem to think that just because it's a big dog, it's going to take a high level of stimulation. And that is not correct. You know, it has to do with the dog's threshold for static electricity. One of the roughest, toughest, highest stimulation dogs I ever trained in my life was a little Jack Russell Terrier for a client. <laughs> and, and we darn near could have hooked him up to a car battery. So he was a little 10, 15 pound dog. And, 
our highest output unit meant nothing to this little hombre. Whereas I've seen big hundred pound showbred Labradors that you couldn't get above level 20 on one of our units. So uh, size of the dog doesn't necessarily mean the threshold of static, but if I can, if the dog is big enough to handle a high output unit, I'm normally going to fit that dog with a bigger receiver box. Cause if I do need it, I'd rather have it than have a medium output unit that doesn't quite have enough. I hope that makes sense. I think it makes total sense. And I love, I love the, the analogy of the size of the dog. And it's, it's, I, it, I would have never guessed that. I would have never thought that that would be the first question or the question that you go back to after you find out the history of the dog's experience with an e-collar, an underground fence mm-hmm. or a bark collar. Brad, is this, does this make a hundred percent sense to you when he starts talking about the size of the dog? Oh yes, um, I, I love the analogy he used about the um, about the gas pedal. Um, I, I'll definitely be stealing that one and using that one in the future. Um, you know, every dog's different, and uh, and and sometimes some of the collars are different, and that's why when we sell a collar, every customer that leaves here goes home with a Dolger collar. Every every customer, and um, my my biggest job. The job that Brad does with every customer that leaves is instructs the new owner how to handle the collar and how much pressure um, or stimulation that dog can have under certain situations. You know, um, if we're just teaching sit here and heal out in the yard with zero distractions, it's one. Um, you know, you got that gas pedal barely mashed. But if a stray cat runs across the yard and the dog takes after and he's about to run across the yard, you're going to mash the pedal down faster in a hurry, you know, for the safety of your dog. And, um, you know, that that's my job here. I teach every customer that comes through here how to um, properly use the e-collar. And I, I, I don't have any um, upset dogs anymore. I have all happy dogs. But when I go hunting and I get invited to these um, duck camps all across the country and I I fly into camp and I get there and their dog is just obedient and a little gentleman. But then when the when I look over there in the duck blind after we've knocked them all down and I look for old Joe and that, that owner, he looks at me and smiles and then calls Joe's name and he goes out there and picks up five or six and then gets that cripple at 250 yards on hand signals. That, that, that's why I wake up every morning before the daylight. So badass. Mr. Pete, this is not meant to be trivia and it's not meant to put you on the spot. It's meant to just test the, the, the common bond between the way Brad Arrington thinks and the way Pete Fisher thinks. You mentioned collar conditioning um, probably 30, 40 minutes ago in this podcast. I thought I, I thought I knew what collar conditioning was until Brad Arrington um, educated me on collar conditioning in, in con- comparison or versus being collar wise or wise to a collar. Does those two scenarios make sense in your brain, Mr. Pete? And what are the differences? Because I want to see if they kind of correlate with what Brad taught me. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that that you know, the old way of using a remote training collar was you just put it on the dog and and a guy that knows more about dog training than I'll I'll ever dream of knowing knowing Pat Nolan who trained a lot of retriever field trial dogs and now does a lot of canine work for the government. You know, he calls it thumping them around. He said, back in the day, they'd put a training collar on a dog and they just thump them around. You know, there was no method to that madness at all, Chad. And, and really there was no finesse either. And that's one of the reasons why these training collars early on got such a bad name. And it was a high level as we talked about. And, uh, you know, I think, Back in the era of, of a trainer by the name of Rex Carr and then uh, developed and refined by 
Judy Acock, and then another trainer by the name of Mike Lardy, uh, figured out a way that we would condition these dogs with a training collar to reinforce these obedience commands. And really all it, all it amounts to is, you know, just a three-step process. And if anybody ever read the Jim Dobbs book, uh, which is a little bit out of date, but really Jim Dobbs was developed the three-step process of conditioning this dog to come to me, go stationary, go away from me. And then really all we do after that is we just build af- off of that. We just build at greater uh, distances. And so, you know, one of the things that I mentioned early on uh, uh, 30, 40 minutes ago was it's long-term behavior management. And, lot, and people will ask, how long do I have to have it on my dog? Well, a lot of that depends on a couple things. The trainability level, how well that dog retrain, retains his training. And then the other thing is, and Brad can relate to this, it all depends on who's pushing those buttons. And so you have to have some consistency. Timing is very critical when you're training a dog. So the conditioning process that we put these dogs through, I'd, I'd, I'd put them through this conditioning process, Chad, if I was training a, a, uh, uh, a pet dog for somebody, or if I was training a gun dog for somebody, or if I was training a, a, a retriever that was going to run and hunt tests and some field competitions. I start with that same basic conditioning process that I described, that three-step process. Whereas the old way of doing it, when they put it on these dogs, all it was was just discipline training. It was just direct pressure. The dog would, um, you know, break on a bird and they would just pour the coals to him with the training collar and bring him back. And there was no finesse. The dog didn't know. The dog has to know the out, how the dog can get out of that uncomfortable feeling of the training collar. And so if you don't do the conditioning process, he doesn't know the out. And so it goes back to what I said earlier, firm but fair. Well, hell, is that fair to, to just light this dog up with a training collar when he doesn't know the out? So that's, to me, the basis of conditioning this dog in yard training long before we ever take them out in the field and, and start any kind of field training and, and heaven forbid, any actual hunting chat. I hope that that describes it. And I think Brad can probably add a little bit to that. Yeah, I, I, I get it and I'm new to it. And I'm, you know, I'm self-admittingly, you know, so, so uh, ingrained in it now. Like it's all I've been thinking about since Brad brought Axel out here. Cause I've never seen it. Like I've never been, I've seen it. I've seen like dogs do amazing things in the field because Brad's there. But now that I have this dog every day and I'm putting that collar on and I see the mm-hmm. difference in Axel. Axel's a master hunter. He's a hunter retriever champion. Um, he's a very qualified dog from good bloodlines. Brad can talk more about that, but they've done an amazing job with him. He'll go back to Brad and Lee in March for hopefully SRS, but I've never witnessed it on a daily basis, Mr. Pete, of what this, what, what the difference is, right? And the way that Brad t- showed me, um, you know, the difference between wise and conditioning and how to get there and what he did with Axel, I saw it the very first day after Brad Brad left and Brad mentioned it. He says he's a different dog when you put the collar on. And I didn't know what he meant by that until I witnessed it. And I was like, Holy smokes. Like, it's like a freaking machine, man. It is literally like (laughs) he develops this armor and he just goes into maximum overdrive mode. If you remember that Stephen King movie back in the day when the machines came alive, it's literally a machine and he's still happy. He's still got personality. He's still got drive. He's still got umph. He's still got, you know, wants to go, but it's like, wow, like what Brad, and Lee and the team at Mossy Pond did with this collar, it turned this dog into something that I feel now, after watching it for the last five weeks, 
I have come to the analogy that you couldn't do it without a collar. I just don't think that you could because this dog is a different machine when it's on in a good way. It is not a robot. In a way, it might be, but he is so well-trained and so disciplined and has still so happy with that tail and that, I mean, I've never seen a dog get up on its back legs to, for, for it, to get into the kennel or get into the truck or get into the trailer, or get into the house. He's literally like rearing up like a brunk, you know, like a Bronco in a rodeo. It's amazing to see the personality change. And so Brad, add on to that a little bit. And I hope that that makes sense. What I'm witnessing, Brad, because it's a completely different ball game to me. Well, you know, um, you put, we've put that collar on and off of him three to four times a day, six days a week since the time he was, you know, four or five months old. And he knows, and that, that's what he, that's what he thrives off of is, is work. And whether it's hunting or training or competitions, he is waiting every day. And he knows when that collar goes around his neck, you know, of course he also knows the part about he's got to be more obedient. He's got to have his thinking cap on. He's got to listen to his handle but but then at the same time that's that's what he loves i mean we we do some treat training as, as puppies but mainly we do it off of um, their parade drive that that's their reward to give them those live ducks we we shoot live ducks live pheasants live quail live pigeons every day here at mossy pond and when those dogs know that they're getting saddled up with that e-collar it's time to go to work and they're about to get some birds so um sure they're gonna they're, they're gonna be excited when you put that e-collar on them and that's what we want you know when I first started, I was seeing, you know, the old timers that put the e-collars on these hounds around here and um, uh, the, the coon hounds and the deer dogs. And you'd put the e-collar on them and they'd kind of get down in the dumps. And that goes back to what uh, Mr. Pete said. You know, there was only one button. I mean, when they wanted a dog back, they'd mash it and he'd come back. There wasn't any collar conditioning. Well, now we teach these dogs how to turn that pressure off. And it's at such a low setting. It's just an aggravation. It's aggravating him and I say sit when he sits it stops and then we we translate that into all the 30 commands a finished retriever would have so he, he's cool with it he said look um, we, we're going to work our butts off we're going to be obedient if daddy or my handler or uncle Brad starts giving me that pressure I'll turn it off because I know how and that, that's why collar conditioning and that, that's why we do it now that they understand it so they have a ears up beating tail and they're excited when I send them home to their own or Chad Belding, and um, he's getting ready to go do a show on the foul line. That dog's excited. He's ready to go. Plus, you have that obedience and that um, insurance policy sitting there in case he's wanting to jump out in front of the gun barrel on a crisp morning or, or chase that honker at 400 yards and he's busting through corn stubble and he can't hear you. You can, um, you can page him or um, give him some soft um, stimulation to bring him on back. Love it. Pete? The hour went by fast. I want to do this again. I love when Brad talks about dogs. I get off on it. Like, it's really like a, it's like my collar conditioning. I get like ultra stimulated when Brad Arrington talks. I don't know if you consider the romance of the Southern man in your life of the voice, <laughs> the dialect, the way they talk, Mr. Pete. But um, my dog, Axel, that Brad and Lee have done such a good job with aforementioned is when I say sit, 
he kind of sits. But when I say, see it, <laughs> like he really sits. So like even the Southern voice, the Southern conditioning is still in Axel, yeah. which is so awesome to see. Any closing words, Mr. Pete? Where are we going with Doctra? What do we have to look forward to? I know it's almost October where the season is here. We're, it's go time. Our dogs are ready. I'm so ready. I know Brad is ready with his new operation that he's getting ready to launch. And launched mine, kind of did a soft launch last year, but it's getting ready to go gangbusters down in Georgia. Where are we going, Mr. Pete? Give us your closing thoughts before uh, we uh, will schedule part two of the podcast here coming up shortly. Yeah, yeah, it always does go fast. Uh, that's what I've always amazed. I look at doing these podcasts, and I've done quite a few of them. And I, I tell people, you know, I've got a face made for podcasts, Chad. So, um, you know, at this point in the year, uh, you know, you you at least if you're in the Midwest, you better have your dog ready. Waterfall season opened up last weekend, and pheasant season starts soon. And and um, so you sh- you better be ready. You know, you better have done all the the practice and pregame stuff. You better have them ready to go. Uh, we've got a lot of neat things around the corner with Dogtra. We're always new, working on new product stuff. Uh, you'll see us at some of the, the large outdoor shows uh, coming up. We may not be at the SHOT Show this year, ironically enough, but we may be uh, expanding out into some other arenas. Um, we'll be at Pheasant Fest, but people can sure stop by. I'm always happy to talk dogs, talk, obviously talk e-callers because that's what I get paid to do, I guess. But uh, I, I'm like Brad in that I have a love of the dogs and and uh, love of the of a finely trained dog more than anything, I guess. And back home here, I was known as the dog man. <laughs> now around the, the world, uh, the U.S. at least, I'm known as the dog tra man. But um, Brad's a great guy. I love having him on. I knew the first time I, c- I could understand him, and I didn't need an interpreter the first time we chatted. So that was that was good as a northerner uh, chatting with a southern boy down there. But um, and and it's I've always enjoyed my chats with him. He's he's a great dog guy, and we I like uh, I got a lot of respect for him and his his guys over there and gals. And his wife is just uh, just a peach of a gal as well. By the way, we sometimes forget uh, to give the ladies uh, the credit that we should. But um, love being on it uh, on your Foul Life uh, podcast, Chad. Let me know when you want to do it again. I'm here for you, man. Man, Pete, I think you're awesome. I, I'd love to get a hunt with you and Brad and, and have you come out and join us in the field. I think it'd be outstanding yeah. to uh, share duck camp together. And um, I truly appreciate you coming on here. I feel the same way about Brad and Miss Ellen and Lee and the entire crew down at Mossy Pond. And um, it's it's one of those things to where you just kind of know it. You know, there's there's always roller coaster rides in life, but you just kind of know where you need to get in, where you fit in kind of deal. And that's how Brad and I have been. It's like, it just makes sense. It just goes good. He's great on camera. His dogs are impeccable. His, his personality, his 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 generosity everything that goes in to what dogtra is looking for in in a spokesperson that's why i wanted to make sure he was on this one i know you and you and mr steven and miss lorraine wanted him on here as well we'll do it again brad any closing words for mr pete and the foul life podcast audience just both of y'all thank you mr pete thank you for always being there for me i've enjoyed our relationship you spoke on relationships earlier and you know i, I feel like we're old friends you know j- just like you said we, we've never met in person but um i know you're always in my corner and you i, I feel like you know that i am and um just to just to tell all the dog truck customers and anybody out there listening um I, i'm here for you all you got to do is pick up the phone you can um, google mossy pond and it's got my personal number on there any questions even if 
if you don't train with me. If you train with somebody else, if you have a dog's request, I'm here for you. And um, I, I just appreciate our relationship, Mr. Pete and um, Chad. You, you know, I appreciate you and appreciate all that you do for me and the business down here. And if you guys need me at any time, I'm a phone call away. We always need you. We always need you, Brad Arrington. This is Chad Belding for another episode of the Foul Life Podcast brought to you by our friends and family at Dogtra. Check them out. Get a training collar. Use it in an ethical manner. Get a hold of Brad Arrington, Lee Howard, Mr. Pete Fisher. They got the answers to all of your questions and inquiries. Tom, hit that button. This is 2AM Logic. The song is called My Foul Life. We truly appreciate all the downloads, the subscriptions, the ratings, the reviews. Please continue to support the partners and sponsors that support our TV shows, our podcasts and our social media efforts thank you all very much for pete fisher and brad errington i'm chad belden y'all have a great day